Uh, it's, it's tough to preach historical narrative. Uh, one of the things you find yourself doing is you'll read a passage and go, yep, it happened. Okay, there it is. Uh, and then you have to be really careful of, uh, of, of putting something on the Scripture that's not already there, right? Trying to dig out a point uh, out of something that's, that's not really there. So you have to be careful when you're preparing a sermon in that way. I hope I've been careful in that way. And so Nick and Wes and I for several weeks have kind of uh, exchanged a few grumbles and gone, Man, who picked Acts? Like, we're having to pick through this historical narrative, and, and it's just tough, right? I know Wes dealt with that last week. He said, uh, this is not Disney World. This is the interstate. And we, we're, we're trying to get to Disney World, but, but you got to get on the interstate to get there, okay? Uh, and this is, this is very much uh, that way. And so it's kind of difficult to pull a sermon out of two chapters and, and be cohesive in thought and historical narrative. So I've prepared three sermons for you this morning. If you had lunch plans, go ahead and get out your phones. Text them, tell them you're going to be late. Three sermons. If you need to stand up and take a stretch break, that's fine. I'm just kidding. I really do have three sermons prepared because I, could I couldn't weave together and be very clever and go, all right, here is the thick red line through all of this that ties all this together. There, I think we'll see three different scenes here, and so I, I want to approach it in that way. Are you ready? Here we go. Sermon number one, Acts 27 and 28, 1 through 10. This is, this is the, the bigger of the, of the three. Sailing storms and snakes. Sailing storms and snakes. All right, we look at uh, chapter 27. If you'll look at it, we see that there are a lot of city names. And this, is, this traveling party is kind of working along the Mediterranean coast. They're outlining a series of small journeys that lead on this larger voyage to Rome. The details here are important. And when this is happening in the calendar is important. All right. I'm not a sailor or a son of a sailor or a son of a son of a sailor, to quote Jimmy Buffett. Uh, I, I am uh, I, I'm a band director and the son of a printer turned insurance salesman and stay-at-home mom. Okay, So I know very little about boats. I've never owned a boat. The only times that I've been fishing, I've done a lot of fishing and not much catching. I'm not... I'm not a water kind of guy. I found water skiing turned into scuba diving very quickly. Um, so, so I have to kind of trust what people who are smarter than I am know about tides and about weather. And uh, I know Casey talks about this a lot of times when he brings me fish back. He talks about how the tides were, which is a good thing. Uh, and so the time of year that these guys are traveling is actually pretty significant here. This is after Passover. We're getting into the winter months. Uh, and so things are getting a little bit colder, uh, and, and so things are beca- they're difficult, difficult traveling months. So these guys are kind of traveling along the coast, sort of hoping for the right wind that'll catch them to go, down, to go over to Rome, okay? So, so here's, here's the scene and why these guys aren't, don't just get in a boat and hop over to Rome, all right? There, there, there's a reason for this. They're traveling along. And he says in verse, verse 9, if you look at that, Acts 27, verse 9, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, so we, we've kind of traveled through the summer months into the fall, and now considerable time has passed at this point. The voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over. 
Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that this voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion, remember Paul is under arrest here, right? This is prisoner transport. This is not a leisure cruise on the Royal Caribbean, okay? So this is prisoner transport. So Paul is not calling the shots. The centurion says he was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. All right. So these guys are trying to put out to sea, and uh, Paul says, hey, it's a bad idea. But the centurion is overruled by the captain of the ship and by the crew. And there's actually a really practical reason for that. Number one, these guys have cargo on board, and they want to make their money as soon as possible and get on with their lives and get back home. Does it make sense? So cargo just sitting in the ship is not making them any money. They have to deliver the cargo to be able to get those goods to the merchants so that they can make their money so that they can go about their business and make more money. It's a business decision for those guys. But there's also a little funny kind of thing that that he says the harbor was not suitable for wintering. This little place where they were staying is is a, a place called Fair Havens, which sounds pretty nice, a lot like Grand Isle. The same kind of idea, fair havens. Doesn't that sound like a kind of place where you want to spend? Grand Isle, a vacation destination for the Gulf South. <laughs> right? That's it. And it's really not that all. There's no offense to the fine people at Grand Isle. If you're joining us via live stream, it's a heck of a fishing town, okay? But it's not necessarily somewhere that you want to kill five months, right? Do they have a Walmart in Grand Isle? Does anybody know? Yeah, they don't even have a Walmart. That's bad. They probably do have a subway, though, because everybody got a subway. Uh, So instead of staying in the Grand Isle of the Mediterranean coast, they want to get, like, over to Destin. That sounds like a better place to hang. We got, like, nice restaurants and cool stuff happening. It's a place called Phoenix. It's not in the middle of the desert, but that is where you get it, right? Okay, so so they want to get down to Phoenix, and so they say this is not a suitable place for harboring, and so they take off. They set sail against Paul's advice, and, and what happens? Anybody know? Did you read ahead? You're just waiting on the preacher to tell you. Okay, that's fine. There's a massive storm, just like Paul said there would be. It's like a named storm in the Mediterranean. They call it a nor'easter. It's got other names too. Um, And so they set sail, and all of a sudden, they are stuck. This storm comes up, and it is a ridiculously huge storm. So much so that there are, by the way, 276 people on this boat. So this is not a little fishing rig out there. They're they're not taking a little 21-foot bass boat out there, okay? This is a 276-person boat. It's a big ship. See, initially, I think about I think about these guys sailing on these journeys, and I think about the little uh, Sunday school books, right? A little Sunday school book. They're out there fishing, and they kind of throw a little net over the side, and they don't catch anything. Jesus says, throw the net on the other side. So they take their little net, and they throw it on that. These are big vessels, though. Like huge vessels to be able to traverse the Mediterranean Sea, which is a, a, a pretty large body of water, right? So this boat, this 276 uh, crew boat, is stuck out in the middle of everywhere. Now, we, we then start to get into, in, in verse 13, all the way through in the 20s, we see that they go through like, like this list of, 
this list of uh, procedures to try to save the ship. That they, uh, that they pull the sails down, that they throw some of the tackle overboard, that they toss some of the extra cargo that they were trying to make their money on. At this point, survival is the key. And, and so we, we might actually, actually kind of like gloss over some of this stuff and just say, oh, okay, and then they threw the tackle overboard, and then they threw the cargo overboard, and then they took ropes, and they like bound the ship together to try to hold it together. And so I, I'm looking at this, and I gloss over that, and I go, all right, come on, Luke, get to the point. All right, Luke, Luke sometimes is a details guy. And I'm talking about this with Wes this week, and Luke does, I mean, uh, he, he does own a fast-forward button, right? We've heard that before. He tells a story, and then they goes, ah, and then they stayed there like three years. He just does that in one verse. So he has fast-forward on the narrative remote. So he doesn't fast-forward through all of this stuff and just go, oh, they set sail, and it wasn't like the best voyage ever, right? They're not going to tip the captain of the ship, but oh, they make it to Rome. Lou goes into, like, boring detail here about how they sail. And so then we ask the question, Why? Why does Luke go into so much detail about how this storm is happening and how they're trying to save the ship? And then we ask the question, how does Luke even know about this kind of stuff? How does he know to use this kind of language? Luke is, Luke is a lot like me, right? He, he's, he's not a native sailor. He, he's an he's a, a educated man who, who is, is into writing stuff, but, but he's not the kind of guy to go out there and rig up a ship. It's not Luke's gig. He has other people to do that. So how does Luke know all these details, other than the fact that he was there? Well, scholars, scholars look at this, and they actually point to this. This is another marker of the historical reliability of Luke's account. Luke has no business knowing how to save a ship in first century sailing, how to save a ship from shipwreck. He has no business of knowing how to do that. It's not his vocation, so he couldn't really make it up. Luke is here, and they say that the way that these guys take care of this storm and keeping the ship afloat is textbook for how you would do that in the Mediterranean on these kind of ships in the first century. Textbook. That the procedures that they go through are exactly what you would do to try to, try to keep a ship floating. That they're dragging anchors. That they're, putting, that they're binding ropes around the sides of the ship to hold the ship together. That they're tossing all the extra cargo. That they're not eating because of fear of seasickness and all these sort of things, right? Like, like all that stuff is exactly textbook for how we would, um, how, how you would keep a, a ship afloat in the first century. So there's some historical reliability here. I realized that the last time we, we talked, the last time I preached, I actually talked about the historical reliability of Lystra and Derby in the Lyconium province and how Lystra and Derby weren't in Lyconium right? Except for about a 30-year period in history. They were never in the same state, if you want to think about it that way, except for about a 30-year period right when the events of Acts were happening. There is historical reliability. We can trust Luke's account. So if he's right about Lister and Derby actually being in the same province, and, and if he's right about how to rig up this ship, is it possible that he's right about the Acts of the Apostles where they're healing the sick? Is it, is it reasonable that he's right when they're bringing the dead back to life? Is it reasonable that he is recording word for word what Paul said in his defense before the council? 
Or does it take more faith to believe that Luke the historian was right about all these things but made this part up? I think it takes more faith to doubt the scripture at this point, to doubt Luke's account. Perhaps you have some other doubts in, in other places in, in, in Scripture, and doubt is not a bad thing. It's, it's really not. Doubt is a reasonable thing. It means that you're thinking through your faith, and that's not a bad thing. Perhaps you have some doubts about other places in Scripture. I'll tell you this. Luke has earned my faith. In his account of the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, he has done such thorough work that he's earned my trust. I think it's remarkable how God appointed this man to record history. And he's not writing a letter to you, by the way. Luke is not writing this so that you would know. He's writing a letter to a friend, most excellent Theophilus. And he says all the way back in Luke chapter 1 when he begins this, he says, I'm writing to you these things so that you may know with certainty the things that you've been hearing. And so he gives a detailed account. We can trust God's word. We can trust Dr. Luke. He did a good job with this history. So Paul, the, the shipwreck is going, and, and I'm immediately brought to two other shipwrecks. All right? I'm immediately brought to two other storms on the sea in my mind. The first thing I thought about is Jonah. Because of Jonah's disobedience, God brings a storm and has the entire ship just assailed. And until they throw Jonah overboard... But then God does not relent with the storm. Because Jonah was disobedient, a storm is brought. And then I think about another storm where Jesus tells the disciples to go on out to the lake and I'll meet you guys. And because they were obedient, the storm comes. And Jesus comes and he goes, why why are you guys freaking out? And he calms the storm. And they wake him up, he calms the storm. And they go, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So this is another account. And Paul has been obedient to to go to Rome to appeal to Caesar, but these guys didn't listen to Paul. (laughs) And so Paul comes in, and I love this line where he says, I told you we shouldn't set sail. (laughs) Like the waves are beating down on them. You know, the boat is almost upside down. And Paul goes, "I, I, I told you guys we shouldn't set sail. Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. But it's not just Paul saying, I told you so. He's going, even though you didn't listen to me, watch this. For this very night, an angel of the the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul stands up to these guys and says, hey, I told you so. But guys, even your disobedience to what I told you cannot thwart God's plan for my life. The influence of people who are not paying attention to the messenger of God are not going to thwart the plans that God has for Paul. An angel comes to him and goes, Paul, I got it. I got this. You have to go to Caesar. And so there's not gonna, you're not going to lose your life, and nobody you're traveling with is going to lose your life. Paul has got a certainty 
that that which God has promised him will come to pass. God's promises to Paul and to us are always fulfilled in their time. So eventually they get shipwrecked on an island called Malta. And we're not going to dig into the story too much here. But they, they set a fire because it's winter, right? Remember that? It's winter and they shouldn't have been sailing anyway. So they have a fire out to keep everybody warm. And out of the fire comes a viper and it bites Paul on the hand. Now, the, the people in this region were, were superstitious, not just a little stitious. Um, and, they, uh, and so they believed that the shipwreck was there to keep Paul, uh, you know, that, that the shipwreck maybe was there like Paul had done something wrong, this prisoner, and so God was punishing him and everybody else. But they survived, and so they go, oh, well, maybe he wasn't guilty. And then a snake bites him, and they go, aha, he was guilty. He must have been some sort of murderer or something. That's why this God, where we get our word nemesis or enemy, this God nemesis would always seek out vengeance where justice hadn't been meted out. And so nemesis had caused this snake to bite Paul on the hand. And so the snake bites and it leaves the fangs in there. It's not just a little, it leaves the fangs in there. So all the venom from that snake is going in and Paul's got it on his hand and and they go, oh, well, he's surely going to die. And so they just wait and watch because there ain't nothing they can do. They're on a big old island. I mean, Luke is there, the doctor. Uh, but I think at that point, like if the snake has already got that venom in there, there's no running to Our Lady of the Lake with the anti-venom, right? They had lost everything on the ship. So they wait and nothing happens. And then they go this totally opposite direction. They go, oh, no, he's not a murderer. He must be a god. But really what we see is even in the midst of this, he's showing the people with him, that nothing is going to stop the plans of God for Paul getting to Rome. Not a shipwreck, not a storm, not a snake, not anything. God's promises to Paul will be fulfilled. We see here, even through this narrative account, that we can trust Dr. Luke, we can trust his historical reliability, and we can, more than that, we can trust God to keep his promises. Amen? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There's no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He is who he is. He is who he was, and he always will be faithful to us. Amen? Amen. Sermon number two. When in Rome, don't do much. You know why? Because Paul was under arrest. <laughs> so I say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Except when in Rome, Paul just kind of sat at the house. For like years. Okay, so check it out. This guy, Caesar, kind of a big deal, right? When we say that the President of the United States is the most powerful man in the world, not even close to Caesar. Caesar was the world. Rome had taken over everything, and Caesar was the dude. So, as you might imagine, his eye calendar on his phone was pretty busy. Lots of appointments going on. I'm just kidding. The iPhone didn't come out for like another couple years. Uh, so Paul arrives in Rome and his centurion guard is with him and also this dude named Aristarchus of Macedonia who had been traveling with them and our narrator 
Dr. Luke is with them. So Paul arrives in Rome. We're in verses 11 through 29. And it talks about their journey from where they put in, in Italy, kind of the, the walk up to Rome, the travel up to Rome. And so in verse 16 it says, And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. This is a courtesy that was afforded to Paul because he was a Roman citizen. Paul's not put in the darkest, deepest prison in Rome. He's actually allowed to kind of stay in an apartment and, and just sort of wait there. It's really a little bit of a privilege. And we see Paul's Roman citizenship affords him certain luxuries. In fact, he's being beaten in, in some towns. And then he goes, oh, uh, by, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they go, uh, uh-oh, we shouldn't have done that. All right, well, let's let him get out of here quietly. And then he's in the jail. Where uh, I'm trying to remember which, which jail he was in. Where was he? Was it in Philippi? Wasn't he in the Philippian jail? And then they say, uh, okay, well, Paul, you can just go. And he goes, no, indeed. No, you arrested me publicly. You can come apologize in person. Right? Paul's a Roman citizen. You get certain luxuries at that point. So he's under house arrest. But he says uh, later on, he, he brings the Jews to his house, right? Okay, so we see in Paul's journeys, what's the first thing he does when he rolls into a town? Anybody remember? This is the audience participation portion of the sermon. Goes to the synagogue, first thing he does. Hard to go to the synagogue when you're uh, chained to this strapping young Roman centurion, right? You kind of stay where he stays, and he says, you're going to stay at home. So instead of going to the synagogue, what does Paul do? Brings the synagogue to him. Paul's a thinker, right? He invites all the Jewish leaders of Rome to come to his house so that he can reason with them and he can talk to them. He's saying, hey, these guys in Jerusalem, they sent me over here, but I haven't had a chance to talk to you guys. I, I, I need to kind of make my case to you guys. So the Jews come to Paul's apartment. And Paul begins to make his reason case. And he goes, by the way, this is the reason that I'm wearing these chains. Now, he's wearing chains, but he's under house arrest. He's, he's actually free to walk around some, but he's literally chained. Have y'all seen like a, a, I think they don't do it anymore because people think it's child abuse, but I grew up with one of those. My mom would put a, a, a thing on my wrist or around my waist, and she would attach the other end to her, and so I'd run off at the mall and go, never mind, got to stay close to mom, right? Did none of y'all have, you don't have to confess right now, but I did when I was a kid, but that was the way my mom kept me close to her. Uh, I think it'd be a good idea now, but they don't let you do that anymore. That's okay. Um, so he's literally chained to a Roman centurion 24-7. And, and these dudes are, are like, they're in four-hour shifts. Okay, so four hours, this guy's chained up to Paul. New centurion comes in. They go, all right, man, change him out. All right, you're stuck with this guy for four hours. But I actually found out that... Uh, 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 or Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, did some historical research and said that actually over the course of this two years that guards start trading out palace duty to go stay with Paul. They start trading out the cushy jobs to go stay under house arrest with Paul. I, I, don't, I don't think that these guys are sitting there going, two and a half more hours. I can't take it anymore. I think these guys eventually are sitting with Paul, and Paul is being salt and light and speaking truth to these guys and being the light of Christ in a very dark and depraved place in Rome. And these centurions want to hear more. In fact, Paul writes a letter while he's in prison there back to the church at Philippi where he was also in jail, 
And he says, greetings from all of the saints, especially those of Caesar's household. This message of the gospel has made its way from, an, uh, from, from a road to Damascus, and it's worked its way all the way to the center of the known world in Rome. From Paul's apartment, it becomes this hub of good news in Rome. And these people that come to see Paul, and they hear the gospel, and it begins to spread out all the way up to Caesar's palace. So uh, the Jews come to him, and they are, are talking about this, and they say, hey, Paul, we, we, really, don't, we really don't know you. In fact, let, let's, let's read here. Let's read at verse uh, 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. So he's saying, in other words, the Romans said, I got nothing wrong with this guy. And the Jews object, and so Paul goes, fine, I appeal to Caesar. And that's like the big red button for a Roman citizen. You're not getting a fair shake. He goes, I appeal to Caesar. End of story. There's no, well, appeal denied. If you're a Roman citizen, you appeal to Caesar. Immediately, you were put on the track to go and appeal to Caesar if you felt you had been wrong. So he's saying, even though Rome found me not guilty, the Jews objected. Your your guys in Jerusalem, the guys I used to run with, so fine. I had to appeal to Caesar. That's why I'm here. He says, for this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Paul still loves his people. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. This word sect, by the way, is the same root word where we get our word heresy. So the Jews are saying here, yeah, we wanted to speak to you too. We, we don't know anything about you, but we know that everywhere this heresy goes, it's spoken against. These guys have already made a decision about how they feel about the news that Paul is bringing. They've already said, we get this heresy. We don't want to hear anything about it, but, but, but sure, sure, Paul, we'll, we'll entertain you out of just uh, uh, out of politeness. And so they set a day for Paul. They came to his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And we see the response to the gospel that we've seen everywhere else in the known world through Acts. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. I think that wording is interesting in our English. Others would not believe, not did not believe, but they would not. They just weren't having. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. 
you will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Paul preaches again an impassioned gospel plea. I was like you. I was like you. I was persecuting these people. I was a Jew's Jew. I was a leader in the synagogue. But let me tell you what happened to me. I was traveling on a road to Damascus to seek and kill and destroy when Jesus came and found me. Paul wasn't searching for Jesus. Jesus came and found Paul. He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And when Paul had an encounter with Christ, Paul's life changed forever. He went from seeking and killing and destroying the church to being a hero for the advancement of the church. Perhaps the most important New Testament figure outside of Christ, the Apostle Paul. And so he shares this impassioned gospel plea. Paul's heart was never angry toward the Jews, but he was heartbroken. He was saying, I was worse than any of you. I was more militant than any of you. And Christ came and he saved me. Why can't you see? Please see this. Please see the truth. Please see that the law and the prophets and all of creation points to Jesus. Can't you see that? And some, wherever Paul went, some saw. And others would not see. They refused to believe. And so, again, it's easy for us to point the finger at the Jews. People who have had unlimited access to the Scripture, who could read everything, who knew it from memory. These Jews who knew everything and missed it. It's easy for us to point a finger at them. And yet here we live in Louisiana. In the United States of America, in what we would refer to as the Bible Belt, most of us, I would say, have four to ten Bibles in our home. Did you say that's accurate? Somewhere between four and ten. I counted this week. We, we, had, we had eight at my house. Um, and so we have ready access to the Word. And people around us have ready access to the Word. And yet, many do not believe. We can see the truth, all that we want, but unless the Holy Spirit comes and changes hearts, we are hopeless and lost, apart, separated from Christ forever. We must pray that access does not become a handicap in our area. That access to Scripture doesn't become a hindrance to people reading the Word and hearing the Word and being drawn by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Sermon 2. Sermon 3 will be quick, I promise. It's called How to Write a Bad Story by Dr. Luke. How to Write a Bad Story. What, what makes a good story? Andrew, how could you dare make that accusation? This is Dr. Luke. Right, he wrote two books in the Bible. How many books in the Bible have you written, Andrew? None. I know. I know. 
I'm throwing stones and I live in a glass house. But here we are. It's kind of a bad story. Luke did a really poor job with this. And so I'm going to call him out on it. You hear me? Come fight me, Wes, if you don't like it. He writes a story in which we have uh, a beginning, right? Jesus goes and he ascends into heaven and the disciples aren't sure what to do. And the Holy Spirit comes. Everything goes from there. And then in about chapter 8, we, we're introduced to, to what's going to become the main character through the thrust of this book, this guy named Saul, who's called Paul by the Greeks. And we're introduced to Paul, and there's conflict. Oh, man, there's conflict. He gets beat up. He gets arrested. He's left for dead, and then, like, he wakes up and just rolls right back into the city where he's left for dead. Like, what? That's what happened, for real. Like, that, it happened in Lystra. Anyway, um, so, like, we have all this action-packed stuff. But you know what has to happen for a good story to... For, for a story to be really great? It's a resolution. What happens to the characters? How mad would you be if you would watch like six seasons of your favorite show on Netflix and the last episode was like to be continued and then they canceled season seven? What? You can't do that, man. And that's exactly how Luke ends Acts. Boo, Luke. What terrible storytelling, Luke. We don't know what happened. What's the end of the story, man? I'm being a little bit dramatic here and over the top. Hang with me. I'm actually going to redeem Luke here in just a second. I don't think it's so bad, right? But let me tell you what actually happens to Paul. He, he does appeal to Caesar. And then we, we uh, maybe some of you don't know this, Paul's found not guilty. He's exonerated. Caesar looks at this and goes, what? I don't have time for this. Look, go. You're, you're fine. It's okay. Right? He appeals to Caesar, and he's exonerated. So Paul does what Paul does. He starts another missionary journey and travels again. But then, about AD 64, AD 65, there's this little thing that happens in Rome where, like, all of it burns down. Did you know that? Like, Rome just burns to the ground. The emperor at the time is a guy named Nero, N-E-R-O. He's not known for being a really compassionate, sweet fellow. But they say Nero was so angry so that he burned down all of Rome and played his fiddle while he watched it. This is legend. But that is, um, if, you, if you go scorched earth on the city that you're trying to rule, it's not a good political move. Right? The people get a little bit upset, and they've stabbed Caesars before, et tu brute, remember? Right? So Nero goes, that might have been a little rash. I need somebody to blame this on you know what? They really don't like those Christians. Let's just say they did. And so Nero burns down all of Rome and blames it on the Christians. We just studied 1 Peter in Sunday school, and Peter is writing to the elect exiles that are spread across the world. You know why they're spread across the world? Because Nero blamed the Christians for burning down Rome, and so they all had to run and hide. So who's the most famous Christian that we know in the known world? Anybody want to guess at that time? Yeah, Paul. So they round up Paul and bring him to Rome. This time he's not staying in an apartment. This time he, he is staying in the cold, dark cell, and he, and he doesn't stay for long. Because Paul's a Roman citizen, they won't crucify him. So they bring him out to the stocks. They place his head over here, and they behead the apostle Paul. Gone. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul, Paul doesn't get to live to, to an old age. 
He doesn't get to watch It's a Wonderful Life every year at Christmas and, and enjoy time with family, right? Paul is martyred for the sake of the gospel. It's a sad ending, but he, was, he says he was already being poured out as a drink offering that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished the race, that he kept the faith. He's writing this to Timothy, and I'm certain that as he wrote it, tears are streaming from a Roman jail. And as Timothy reads it, tears are falling back on the parchment again. Because this hero of the faith dies a martyr's death. But had Luke finished out Acts, I don't think he would have stopped there either. Because I think to view the end of the Apostle Paul as the end of Acts is an incredibly short-sighted, myopic view. Because Paul is not the principal character in Acts. The church and Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, is the principal character in Acts. That's what this whole thing has been about. It's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. It's about Jesus and the church that he died to redeem. That's the point of the book. And the church did not die when Paul's head went in a basket. And the church did not die when Peter was crucified. And every other apostle, when they were martyred for their faith, the church did not die. It lived on and it lives on. The book of Acts is not a book with an ending. It has no back cover. We are living right now in Acts chapter 29. We are living right now in Acts chapter 29. If you believe that God did great things then and can't do great things now, you have not been paying attention. The truth of the gospel is this, that God's promises are always fulfilled. Always. Perhaps in their own time, perhaps not on our schedule. Perhaps your head ends up in a basket. Perhaps you end up dying a martyr's death. Perhaps you are like Isaiah and you preach and preach and preach and preach and no one responds because God has hardened their heart and stopped their ears. The promises of God that are here in Acts are being fulfilled today. So so what have we learned from this book? This book with no back cover, this, this book of Acts. How do we summarize the things that we've been presented with over the course of the last several months? I think there, there's one big question, perhaps with three answers. What should we do with what we've learned in Acts? Should we trust in God's faithfulness after seeing his faithfulness on display? Or should we remain faithless and say, you can't do what you did then today, God? Somehow God has shrunk. Somehow he's less powerful than he was in the first century. Foolishness. That's foolishness. Let our hearts be encouraged that the God who was faithful here is faithful today. Should we share the gospel to the ends of the earth? Even to those who are Gentiles to us, who are culturally different, who are nationally different, who are ethnically different than us, They're not one of us. They're Gentiles to us. When we see, (laughs) hang on, pull your toes back. Do we pray for the redemption of the terrorist? Or do we pray for his swift end? Do we pray for the redemption of the one who has wronged us in ways that are 
that are too inexplainable for us to even think about? Do we pray for the redemption of the rapist? Do we pray for the redemption of the child pornographer? Do we pray for the redemption of the serial killer? Or do we pray, get them, God. They deserve it. Guess what? You deserve it too. You are lost and wicked apart from Christ. (laughs) Maybe your actions don't manifest the same way, but your heart is just as black. You're just as selfish. You rebel just as hard against God's creation. But Christ has come and given you a new heart. He's taken out a heart of stone and put into you a heart of flesh. So do we pray for the redemption of people that don't look like us, that don't act like us, that don't talk like us, that don't smell like us, that don't worship the same way that we do? Do we pray for a unified church that looks very different than the one in which we sit this morning? Should we thank God for his word? for the encouragement that we glean from its pages. He was with the disciples. What did he say? Always, even to the end of the age. Until the earth is raised and made anew, I will be with you. He's with us today. Why am I thankful? Because the gap between reason and faith has gotten a lot smaller for me. I'm thankful for this text because I am able to be a thoughtful man and still believe. I hope that Acts has made you think, has made you ask, can I trust the history that's written here? And I hope that you've come up with an overwhelming, yes, I can trust Luke and I can trust God. He is faithful to us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, I am thankful that you are faithful. I am thankful for the Apostle Paul, for Peter, for Stephen, for James, for John, for all of the first century church who believed and pressed on against great persecution so that the name of Jesus Christ would be known far and wide. I'm thankful for the scholars who have worked to preserve this book so that we can know the things with certainty. I'm thankful for Luke who has been faithful to record this scripture so that we can trust and have historical reliability in how we trust. I am most thankful for the Holy Spirit who takes blind eyes, deaf ears, and cold hearts and allows us to see allows us to hear, and allows us to understand. For those this morning who perhaps realize that their heart is still cold, that their eyes are still blind, that their ears are still stopped, God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now, now to them, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to bring a dead man back to life, to forgive us of sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen.